Hello everyone, I'm Daniel Brandt and I'd like to welcome you to the Ambassador Living on the Edge podcast, the show that focuses on all things related to cloud native platforms, creating effective developer workflows and building modern APIs. Today I'm joined by Sam Newman, independent technology consultant and author of the O'Reilly book Building Microservices. Anyone interested in the topic of microservices has surely bumped into Sam's work. I learned a lot from the first book, which was published when I was doing work in the Java space and building Java microservices. A second edition of this book is currently underway, and Sam has recently published another book called Monolith to Microservices. This contains great content focused around migration patterns like canary releasing and parallel runs, and also explores how to evolve systems using patterns like the Strangler Fig. In this podcast, I was keen to pick Sam's brains around how to design and test microservices, and this ultimately led us to discuss the concept of service ownership. I was also keen to learn about his experiences setting up local development environments for microservices and to learn about patterns for how this functionality is propagated through environments and released ultimately to customers. If you like what you hear today, I would definitely encourage you to pop over to our website. That's www.getambassador.io, where we have a range of articles, white papers, and videos that provide more information for engineers working in the Kubernetes and cloud space. You can also find links there to our latest release of the Ambassador Edge stack, also our open source Ambassador API gateway, and our CNCF hosted telepresence tool too. Hello, Sam, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Daniel. Could you introduce yourself, please, Sam, and share a few career highlights for us? So I'm an independent consultant been doing software for about 20 years. My main focus is sort of cloud, continuous integration, continuous delivery, and I'm probably better known for microservice-related stuff. And uh, career highlight, I've published two books. So my career highlight was my most recent book. I like finishing something and handing it over and people seeing it. Both the books I've had released have been a big career highlight for me. So it's a tradition in this podcast to talk about developer experience and developer loops. And we always start the podcast without naming names, protect the guilty and the innocent here. Can you describe your worst dev experience from that coding, testing, releasing and verifying? Okay, so I'll I'll tell you two stories. One of the worst was very early on in my career, 2005, and we had a classic separate test team problem. We were trying to do more tests ourselves. And we were doing it in, but the client we were working for also had insisted on hiring a separate test team. And one of these individuals who had an excellent education, had come from a very a top tier university, well known for its computer science credentials, had, had basically come up with a test suite called Whitebox that was the flakiest thing you've ever seen in your entire life. Like it would, it would just fail at random times. But this guy had, was so smart that he'd worked out that these tests passed more frequently overnight than they did during the day. I mean, it's just classic non-deterministic test behavior. But rather than fixing the underlying flaky issue, he'd done some statistical analysis and worked out that they passed more often at three o'clock in the morning. So he would schedule his check-ins with (laughs) Windows scheduler to do his check-ins at like two o'clock in the morning in the hope that the test would be more likely to pass. You'd come in in the morning and the test would be broken and he just wouldn't be there. He'd turn up at 11 o'clock. That was bad. The worst one that I didn't was a colleague of mine was at a company, went into a client. They were trying to get him to move towards continuous integration. No one was playing ball. They couldn't work out why. They eventually found out that the way software got done is a developer would build it on their laptop and would get the latest build of the software to the traders working on the trading floor. Then traders felt that it was an edge to get the latest version of the software. And in exchange for you being the one that got the software to the trader, there'd be a little envelope for you at the end of the month, mm. cashing it. <laughs> so trying to get these builds fully automated into the point where <laughs> no ceremony did not play well. But yeah, those were the two worst that I'd come across, I think, in my experiences. 
Uh, they're pretty good. So that's, that's quite a unique angle as well. I like yeah. the the trader and the uh, cash envelope. I've not heard one of those before. That's very interesting. It was just like it's just thick with bills, and it's like wow. hey, wow, well, okay, with everything's in the, everything's based on incentives, isn't it? That it is. That it is. <laughs> nice. So I'm definitely keen to explore your book, Monolith Microservices. I've actually got a copy here beside me, Sam, as we're talking. But first, I wanted to look at some of the things around developer experience. I've sort of hinted you know, in that question. Obviously, microservices means you're typically building a distributed system. And this is new to a lot of folks. Yeah, it certainly yeah. was for me. Like when I bumped into your work, I don't know, five or more years ago, I guess. I wanted to run through sort of from that local dev to delivering value in production. Have you got any advice for folks, broad brushstrokes I appreciate, for setting up local development? Because I think there's a tendency for people as they're building microservices to want to run everything on their laptop. Yeah, I, I think the very first challenge comes up is the context of ownership and what you own. So backing up, right? It's all about fast feedback. So what I want is fast, high quality feedback on my laptop, right? I want that. Does it work now? And I want to get feedback as quickly as possible. And so running loads of processes on your laptop is going to suck because I can, my laptop, all it's trying to do is a virtual background in Zoom and the fans on my MacBook Pro are spinning, let alone running, you know, seven or eight, uh, you know, JVM based processes. So you always want fast feedback. So you kind of want to limit how many things you're having to, to run. And then when you're running tests, you want to limit the scope of those tests, get fast feedback. I mean, this is all, you know, bread and butter type stuff. The challenge comes then when I see organizations that have kind of quite strong ownership versus quite weak ownership of microservice stacks. So if you've got a team where you've got like 50 developers and you could work on any one of 50 different microservices, you've got like a roving portfolio. I could be anywhere. Mm. And in those situations, people more readily want to run more stuff because they don't know which bit they're going to be working on. On the other hand, if you have maybe a stronger ownership, this is the team. We work on these two services and this is the scope of what we own then I think those teams are much more aware of saying this is our bit of the world and we can stub things out because that's sort of outside our responsibility. So it's sort of, it's almost like I can tell people you shouldn't need to run that many things locally. You should either kind of use something like telepresence or something equivalent to sort of shell out to the cloud effectively. Mm -hmm. All the the amazing stuff that Microsoft has that does this kind of Mm, crazy tools they've got. Or just say that is not your business. But if you are in an organization that has more of that, anybody should be able to change anything and will change anything model, which I don't actually think is very effective at scale. If you're going to do that, it becomes a much harder conversation to have about you don't need all this stuff because actually you might. And that's a real problem. It's also more pronounced, of course, with the technology stacks. You know, I can quite happily have a whole load of Python processes running locally and no one cares, right? If I'm doing the same thing with the JVM or the CLR, my laptop really does care about that. Yeah, And, And there I've just played around with some hybrid models where like pretending I'm running separate JVMs, but they're actually all one JVM. But you get into so many ways in which that's not anywhere near production-like because then you can't run it in a container. And pre-containers, right, the whole problem was my laptop is quite different to my CI environment and my CI environment is quite different to my prod environment. So silly things like, you know, oh, on this operating system, there's case sensitivity in path names. Yeah, classic. That's gone away with containers because we now have a production-like operating system giving us that more production-like experience. But then that means if we're doing a JVM or a CLR-based system, that's going to be quite a big impact. Whereas if I'm running Go processes or you know, Node processes, it's not quite as bad a state of affairs. After speaking to lots and lots of people, I still think this idea of strong ownership of microservices is the one that seems to align the best, which is, a microservice in general is owned by a team. 
and 18 might own one or more microservices. But where you start getting into the world where I've got multiple teams and all of them own these microservices, you want to sort of weird sort of commune, hippie-esque, collective ownership yeah. model. It's like, it just doesn't work. Five, 10, 15 people, absolutely, you can make that work. No question. 50, 100, it doesn't, it breaks down. And I think people then say, but I can send pull requests. And it's like, that's not how pull requests work. But then I have a different <laughs> Because like when I, I, I spent a couple of years working at, at Google, working where well, we had 10,000 engineers all working on one big source tree, but that wasn't a really a collective ownership model. So Martin Farrell has definitions of ownership. So he talks about strong, weak, and collective ownership. And if you actually look at his definitions, the, what, what Google practice is strong ownership. There are certain people that are allowed to change certain source files. If somebody else wants to change those source files, they have to ask for permission. That's what happens. I want to change your source code. Here is a commit. Will you let me merge that commit? That's a strong ownership model. Somebody's acting as the gatekeeper. And so in when I was there, I'm, I know things have changed. Every directory structure would have an owner's file in it. That owner's file said who owns the code in that. And you had to have somebody from the owner's file say, yes, you're allowed to put that in. Interesting. And that that was a strong ownership model. And I think people look from the outside and misunderstand how those things work effectively when you actually get up to grips with it. It's classic, isn't it? We use technology sometimes or even process to fix like underlying ownership or organizational issues. Yeah, yeah. This is one of those areas though where we can look at that technology and say, you want to run 10, 15, 20 services on your laptop. Well, you, you don't actually have to. And sometimes the answer is you don't actually have to. But then it's about, well, how do you scope what is your active unit yes. development? And, and there, you know, the model that seems most common is I'll actually have a cluster of things. So I tend to work on these four. So I'll have some sort of uh, template effectively that allows me to stub out those dependencies or use something like Mount Bank or something to just, just to stub that out. But then if they are working in an environment where from day to day or week to week, they could be changing what they're working on. Unless you've got a heavy degree of standardization about how you spin things up, that's a really difficult world to be in. Yeah, it's tricky, I guess, isn't it? Because I, I often hear folks that have worked at Google. I chatted to Kelsey Hightower um, a couple of weeks ago, and he said exactly the same. As you said, the Google dev experience is fantastic, but they have whole teams working on their developer experience, and most of us are not in that fortunate position to, to be there, are we? I was actually in their tools team when I was there. So I was one of, well, I think at that point, the tools team was around, it was between 100 and 200 people. So for 10,000 engineers, you can easily afford to have one to 200 people doing everything from a distributed peer-to-peer -peer object linking, object cache linker thing. I was working on the system that helped store all test results in the system. So whenever you ran a build, you could see where the test was, and you could code coverage all that. You could afford to do that when you've got 10,000 engineers. That's, that's, you know, that's noise. But those models don't necessarily apply. So you're taking something like what Google does or maybe what Facebook does and saying, we'll do that, just because they've open sourced some of it, yeah. And, and and Google haven't actually open sourced any of it, really. But you, you can't recreate that experience, and nor should you, because there's also an extent to which Google is solving problems that maybe, A, only they really have, and B, a lot of them are problems they don't need to have. Um, but that's a different conversation. <laughs> Yeah, I think Adrian Cockroft uh, said it really well a couple of times in presentations at QCon. Like people are just copying the outputs and not understanding the stuff. And I heard you say the same in your talks as well. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, but it's the voice of experience speaking there. You've been through this. A lot of us perhaps haven't had that experience. Yeah. Uh, and it's also often a lot of us don't have the ability or the access to scratch a bit deeper into this. 
a talk by somebody at Uber or at Google or at Facebook automatically gets magnified because the name's attached. And then something that they say is now the position of the whole company. So I got sent this thing recently, which is Uber's moving away from microservices. They're adopting, I saw that. They're adopting macro services. Yeah. <laughs> I, I dug into it. I read the article about the guy and the guy says, I'm only one team and I don't know what anyone else in Uber's doing. And there's about five of us in this team. And I dug into what the definition of macro services were. And there is no definition of macro services. And it's just that for them, they felt that they had too many services. They wanted to have fewer services. They merged them back together again. And that yeah. the whole story. Yep. No, no, no. <laughs> Microservices are dead. It's macro services. It's like, guys, just, and I, it took me less than two minutes to get that information because the guy had actually, to be fair to him, he'd written an article and actually explained it. All the segment stuff as well. That was fine. Because it was a really interesting talker. I quite enjoyed that talker, uh, the segment talker. Yeah, I bumped into you, didn't I? The fire yeah, drill and yeah, that yeah. talk. Yeah, yeah. Was. I was able to speak to the presenter about that. And she was talking about a, a, a series of design decisions they went through where they kind of had microservices and they moved away from them and that, that actually for them it didn't work and then someone said oh that means segment don't use microservices and i spoke to her and she said no no actually we're only one team and there's four people and we had 60 microservices to manage and we had four people and i'm like that was too many and they moved away from it but you take these things out of context and then suddenly yeah. you're anyway it's the hacking news or Reddit effect. So I chat to Alex at QCon. That, that ridiculously smart, well thought out book was everyone in the audience thought they knew better. Oh, I should do this, should do that. I mean, I've been there. I've you know been that person. But I think it is, uh, you know, taking that time to go a little deeper, as you said, Sam, pause, check the context, understand what's going on rather than jump to the clickbait title. It's not as much fun. You don't get any manifestos out of that, though. <laughs> I never did do the microservices manifesto, but it would be full of too much snark to actually be taken <laughs> by anybody. But uh, and, and I do understand people are time poor, but also when people share these things, they get translators hot takes quite quickly. And then yeah. whole industries are born. Agreed. Agreed. Says the microservices expert. <laughs> <laughs> nice very nice so i wanted to move on to look at this uh, releasing because uh, i find that quite tricky it's very easy to create a distributed monolith where you have to release it all in lockstep yeah you know, i think I, my first system i built I did, I did that to be completely fair i bump into release trains quite a lot actually in organizations i've heard you talk about these kind of the scaled agile framework which i'm sure we've all got our opinions on that one mm -hmm. but like the release train is a almost a best practice in that yeah have you got any thoughts on or hot takes maybe <laughs> on the release train yeah i've heard less polite definitions of what safe stands for <laughs> i won't repeat those in the podcast so putting aside my feelings about safe the release train was always kind of a very useful mechanism to help people adopt proper continuous delivery and so the release train i always viewed as as like training wheels and that was my focus before microservices i spent five ten years focusing on cicd and I got to microservices as a result of that and realizing sometimes the architecture needs to change. And that's, so this is, yes. this is my background. And you'd go into organizations and one of the biggest problems was that they would have some functionality they want to put out of the door, but it wasn't quite ready. So they just delay the release. And those releases would get less and less frequent. And there's all the sorts of associated issues with that. And so the kind of thing with the release train was getting them used to a cadence, which was saying, look, every four weeks, you're going to release what's ready to go live at four weeks. If your software isn't ready, it waits four weeks. And you get people used to that rhythm. And then you increase the release cadence. And then you will increase the release cadence. And then you get rid of the release train and move to release on demand. But it's like training wheels on a bike. It's something you move through and move beyond. 
the problem with something like safe is it effectively codifies the release train as being the best way to release software and almost as something aspirational when and that to an extent is my problem with sort of safe as a as a whole really is that it it sort of codifies mediocre development practices as being somehow aspirational and it gives a great way for enterprises never to actually have to change and guess what you get an a1 laminated org chart for your for your money so for me it was like the release train that, and then when you look at a microservice architecture if you practice say a release train across your your application which might consist of multiple services you very quickly get to a situation where multiple services are being deployed at the same time as part of each release train leaving and that means that even if you theoretically had microservices that could be deployed independently over time that's not what's going to happen you know release train yeah. ends up driving you towards that so if you have got people that are on a release train a couple of things remember it's like training wheels so increase that release cadence the other thing you can do is move to a release train per microservice so if you've got an invoicing service a payroll service an order processing service and you're working on those maybe have each one has its own release train maybe that might be a way to move and or at least a per team release train so at least you say with this team if you own these services you can have a release train but it only applies to your services other people have their own release trains and at that that also can make it easier for to help the people that are most ready to move to release on demand get rid of their release train. But if you have that sort of like cadence set at a program level and everyone has to stick to that cadence, it means those people that want to move faster are constrained and aren't able to do that. Whereas if you can localize those release cadences within each team, people can be in charge and I think more readily move away from that and you de-risk the we've got a distributed big ball of mud problem. Big bang type thing. Uh, yeah. Really. Yeah. 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 Nice. Like Martha famously says, the only thing you get with a big bang is a big bang, right? Exactly. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I wanted to move on a little bit, Sam, to the progressive delivery kind of space. So I think I've bumped into you talking about this. I'm a big fan of James Governor's work. I'm, yep. I'm sure you are too. Um, what's your thoughts around the whole progressive delivery, GitOps kind of thing? I've heard some folks say progressive delivery is sort of more of an extension of continuous delivery. GitOps is just really best practice for Kubernetes. But I, I see some value, like, deeper than that but i'm kind of curious what your thoughts are yeah i mean for me progressive delivery is a good umbrella term for a whole bunch of techniques regarding how we roll out software and i think we've in the past thought quite simplistically about how we roll our software out and really we've i mean jez talks about this very early on i think back in 2010 he did a really nice set of articles over at inform it where he talks about this this idea that we've got to separate our in our heads the act of deployment from the act of release so for many of us, I've deployed into production is the same thing as I've released my software. Mm-hmm. And so he gives the example of the blue-green deployment as the classic example of separating those two steps. I've deployed my software into production, but it's not live because I've deployed into blue and we're currently live out of green. When I do the switchover, now it's live. So if you can separate those two concepts in your head, you can start thinking differently about how you roll that software out. So I think progressive delivery is an umbrella term for the different ways in which I might roll my software out. I think makes sense because we've now got tools and technologies that allow us to go beyond sort of fairly simple things like blue-green deployments. We can now do things more easily like parallel runs, maybe rollouts, and you know, and arguably parallel runs are basically a form of dark launching. So those sort of techniques having an umbrella term, I think, makes sense because then you can point at it and say, look, you've got the continuous delivery process and then the delivery process ends in delivery. Well, actually, there's nuances around that part of it. So what is your technique going to be for how you roll that software out? I mean, for me, GitOps is a separate thing in a way, which is, you know, using version control as your source of truth, your desired state management, right? Which is 
this is what I want my system to look like. I version control that, and I've got some tooling that makes sure that those things bridge together. I might use GitOps to implement my progressive delivery rollout, potentially, but I kind of try and separate those two things out. I also know, you know, I get a lot of people angry because I, I used to do lots of work with Puppet and Chef and, you know, all this sort of stuff. And when they, when those sorts of folks saw the GitHub stuff, they said, we've been doing this for years, and they started frothing <laughs> at the mouth. And they're yeah. totally right. Yeah. But actually, there is value in having a term that allows you to talk about a thing. What do I talk about when I do Puppet? Is it infrastructure automation? That's Is that really all it is? It's not really just infrastructure automation. And so I have some sympathy for Alexis and the folks that we've trying to name yeah, this yeah, thing and also define it. I think if anything, the unfortunate thing is GitOps has been narrowly viewed as just what you do in Kubernetes, which... Yeah, interesting. Even I fall into that trap, to be fair, Sam. Yeah, yeah and, and I, yeah, I mean, I was involved in some of the original conversations around this stuff. And historically, a lot of this conversations were going on was because the story around CICD and on Kubernetes was, was pretty poor. And some of the solutions that were coming up in that space really did not fit what I think is kind of good practice around CD. Yeah, people were shelling out to Coop Cuttle, weren't they, for a while, things like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the lack of awareness of prior art maybe in that space as well. And so there was an attempt, you know, certainly, uh, you know, Alexis and the folk at Weave, you had people like David Aronchik and things as well, who was at Google at the time and now moved on to Microsoft. We're really trying to get efforts moving. Um, Vic Inglesias as well at, 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 um, at Google. We're trying to say, well, how should CICD look in that? given that we've got tools that have new capabilities there's a bit of a vacuum and a lot of the tooling that works really well in other contexts hasn't embraced kubernetes yet i still think that a lot of the solutions in that space seem to have just missed out a whole bunch of what continuous delivery is and it's got very very branch heavy daniel it's very git flow it's very git flow it's very let's not do continuous integration because that's scary. So I've I do have some fairly firm problems with with that side of things, and so I've fallen out with a few vendors in oh, the space. No. It's one of the benefits of being independent, right? I, yes, I, totally. I mean, I know you guys, and so I think the stuff at least around GitOps, which is like version controlling stuff, is a really good idea. Just get that idea really firmed in. Desired state management, that's a really great idea. Let's show you how you can bring those tools together in a way that works natively in a Kubernetes landscape, absolutely. And I think it's sensible to talk about it, to be honest with you. Whether or not it's right for everybody, because at the moment you are buying into some, you know, you're having to buy into Flux or Spinnaker or something similar. And that's yet another tool to get your head around. Like for me, it's like, if I can get design state management stick in people's heads and version control stick in people's heads, once those ideas are stuck, then joining those two ideas together and now talking about that next step, it's it's not that far a journey to take people on. I like it, Sam. I like it. You mentioned a couple of patterns here, which I'm keen to dig into in just a second, but I wanted to get your thoughts around observability because for me, that's often closing that feedback loop, right? Continuous delivery doesn't end with deployment, as you rightly said. You've got to, like, did we hit our KPIs? You know, are we are we breaching our service level agreements at a, you know, operational yeah. level? And what's your take on observability for microservices like logging, metrics, all that kind of stuff? My favorite tweet probably ever uh, which shows you how sad I am that sums this situation up really well is by the honest status page. And it says, uh, we turned our monolith into microservices <laughs> so that every production outage is like a murder mystery. Love it. And that's, yeah. that's, that's the issue, right? You, you've got a, a whole load more sources. I mean, 
fundamentally, it comes down for me to the troubleshooting flow. I mean, yeah, you can talk about gathering trends and uh, no, it's easy. The, the big thing is something's gone wrong. What the hell's gone wrong? Yes. And in that situation, you need to find out what's going on or at least get to recovery and then gather the data you need to fix the problem going forward. Yeah. So I, I you know, I'm there are some smarter people out there to talk to about this than me. You've got Liz and Charity and Cindy in this space, just to name but three. But the thing for me, it does start with some basics for people. And I say, you know, log aggregation for me is, is pretty much the only prerequisite I have for microservices full stop. I say, you know, for an organization, if they're interested in adopting microservices, I say get log aggregation before you do anything else. And it's for two reasons. One, it's super useful. And two, and, it, and really is that is early on is going to be give you so much return on investment in terms of understanding what the hell's going on is having good log aggregation. Yeah. The yeah. second reason is implementing log ag- a log aggregation solution is not in the grand scheme of things hard. If you as an organization cannot do it, I'm sorry, microservices are too hard for you uh, because you, it requires some joined up thinking getting your operations, whoever handles operations, to roll out some small, very small changes. I mean, we're talking about running one logging daemon where your microservices live and pushing it somewhere central. This is not difficult work. So if you can't do that as a, a simple prerequisite, that's, that's probably a sign that other things are going to be going wrong. Once you've got log aggregation into place, then it's, it's simple things like standardizing log, log formats. But the fundamental kind of mindset shift is moving away from this model where you go to a computer to ask if it's okay. Because that computer is now a, it's potentially a container, it's ephemeral, it might not be there, it might be there, in which case, great. But you have to assume the machine may have gone. So yeah. you've got to get the data from those machines to you. That's why log aggregation is so important. That why if you are relying on stats, gathering your stats somewhere centrally in something like Prometheus, if you really must use Prometheus, gathering that data centrally, that's super important and getting into that model of aggregating that data. The, the next sort of problem people hit is around performance and understanding where time is being spent. So distributed tracing, obviously, is really super important here. That, for me, is not something I do day one. If I've got log aggregation in place and basic stats gathering in place, then I start getting worried about my latency. Then I'm going to look for distributed tracing tools. But I would do correlation IDs before that. And we've talked about that stuff in the past. Once I've got my log aggregation in place, every single thing should have a correlation ID. Yeah, just nice. get that in. Once you've got that in your microservices stack, the places where you've got the hooks for your correlation ID generation and logging is where you put your hooks in for your distributed tracing. So that becomes a, a sensible thing. So that's my general case progression of how I build that platform up. The bigger issue then is another one is, is it working? And I think with more simpler deployment topologies, our view about is it working is really, we don't look to say, is it working? We look to say, are there any problems? We look for the presence of errors. We look for a red flashing light on a dashboard. We look for a, a CPU being redlined. And with a fairly simple system, I mean, simple in terms of deployment topology, the presence of an error like a redlined CPU is often a good proxy for something being broken. It does mean something. Those, uh, the presence of an error ceases to be as meaningful when you have more moving parts. Instead, you really need to ask the actual question, which is, is it working? Yes. I might have errors. This CPU might not be happy. I might be having an out-of-memory killer over here. This container's thrashing all over the place. But but can people still sign up? Can yeah, people make yeah. money? And if you can see so then as, as your sort of sources of noise increase, you do then start needing to almost be asked. I mean, this is where you're moving to sort of semantic monitoring. You're sort of making value statements about your system that have to be true. 
And then to an extent, the errors are then things that you might investigate if those value statements aren't found to be true. And that's that that takes a while, I think, to, to move through that progression, because often, especially in more established enterprise organizations, the role of monitoring and alerting is such a siloed world. And those people don't have awareness about what good looks like from a business context. Business, yeah, that's the key thing in a business context is key. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, great. And I'll, you mentioned a bunch of interesting names there. I'll definitely link them in the show notes too, because like Liz, Charity, Cindy, Ben Siegelman, I'm a big fan mm-hmm. of too. They've written lots of good stuff around this. It's not, I'm starting to realize it's not as easy as I think sometimes this notion of observability, right? Yeah. And, and it means, again, it's like progressive delivery in a way, right? It's a good umbrella term for a whole bunch of new thinking in this space. A lot of that new thinking being old ideas that we yeah. are packaging together, right? But <laughs> yes. It's still at least something on which we can, a term on which we can hook articles and have conversations so i think it's as good a term as any we've got i like it i like it so in the sort of final five or so minutes we've got here sam i wouldn't mind to have a look at the um monolith to microservices book yep the couple of things that stood out in the book when i was reviewing it was is that an evolutionary patterns to transform your monolith and the evolutionary and the patterns really jumped out to me i like this idea i've heard you pitch it a lot about iterating evolving not trying to do big bangs and i've heard you talk a lot about patterns of late what would your go-to pattern be in terms of evolving a monolithic system towards microservices, say? I mean, they're all a bit different. I would say it's maybe not a pattern is not, not the right word. It's the metaphor that I buy into. We're we'll trying to get people to buy into this. And that's like, I say that adopting a microservice architecture, is not like flicking a switch. It's like turning a dial. Yes, turning right. a dial on your stereo to get to the volume you like. You turn it up till you find your happy place and then you know, to go from there. And that's the same thing in microservices. You've got to buy into this idea. It is going to be a progressive journey. There are some patterns that, are really easy to implement if your architecture fits those problems. The strangler fig application pattern strings brings to mind, right? Which works really well if you can do call interception. So it's basically a way where you're basically a call is going to come into your existing monolithic system. So this typically is used underneath the UI, although you can do it in the UI as well. And rather than that call to request some functionality being served by the monolith, if that functionality has been migrated to a microservice, that call is intercepted and diverted. So this works really, really well with HTTP-based systems, although I spoke to a team called HomeGate in Switzerland that actually used this with FTP. So, yeah, and I've seen it done with messaging as well, message interceptors and things like that. And the nice thing about that is that pattern works really well because you don't actually have to change the monolith. It's almost unaware that anything's happening. It might be aware it's getting fewer calls and they're now being diverted away somewhere else. Uh, and that pattern was actually mostly used, I mean, I used it multiple times when doing rebuilds of existing system stacks but moving from monolith to monolith. And they works, it works surprisingly well. There's some areas it doesn't work well. So you've got to be able to intercept a call coming into the system and move that call's functionality effectively over into the new microservice. So if I've got something that's maybe more side effecty that I'm trying to migrate, that's not going to work. So the example I think I give in the book is I might have a call coming into a system that says place order. I could intercept that call. As a result of placing the order, I might want to award some loyalty points to you for buying so many Justin Bieber CDs or whatever it is you're going to buy. I don't know. <laughs> that functionality is almost treated as a side effect of the order call coming in. I can't get hold of that loyalty points awarding functionality on the edge of my system. Yeah, yeah. So, but I could get the orders and then have the orders called back into the monitor to do the one. So there's there's that. I mean, that's that's a really such a straightforward pattern, and it and it's a nice one to start with because. It's an easy one to roll out. It's very easy to de-risk. It conceptually makes a lot of sense. 
And it can also work well in situations where you have different people who are doing the microservice migration from the people who work on the monolith system because they don't actually have to coordinate too much. So wrapping up, I guess, Sam, what do you think the future of developer experience is going to look like? Say five years time, are we all going to be building our nano services, microservices, macroservices, call them what you will? How are we going to be building those, do you think? Do we have more platforms or Kubernetes get pushed down into these platforms? What do you think the future looks like? I hope no one knows Kubernetes exists. (laughs) I mean, look, you know, Kubernetes is not a developer-friendly experience. And it it just isn't. It's just not in no way, shape or form. And the tooling's got a lot better in this space. I remember this fantastic talk by Elle at GoToBerlin. All the tools that make developer experience and Kubernetes effective. And it's a brilliant talk. And... They know we know their stuff, but it was like, I need to lie down. <laughs> it's too much, yeah. So for me, there's almost two things. There's the logical architectural style stuff, and then there's the physical deployment experiences. And the cloud function abstraction is the best new developer-friendly abstraction I've seen for deploying software since Heroku. Right. Heroku is still the gold standard of PaaS, as far as I'm concerned. It's still brilliant, even if the maybe the the, the software itself hasn't kicked on. Uh, the cloud function concept is brilliant. The current crop of executions leave a lot to be desired in terms of usability. I mean, you see how something like Zit is, and then you compare that to, say, Lambda. And uh, Lambda sucks compared from a developer, from some of the developer experience stuff compared to, say, Azure cloud functions. You look at the debug cycles, debug processing on, on cloud functions on Microsoft Azure. It's amazing. Like I can run a function in the cloud and debug it from my laptop. I can have a function running on my laptop, but triggered from cloud function from Azure and debug it locally. I mean, that yeah. stuff is insane. The durable functions they've got. But even then, it's still a train wreck, right, compared to what it could be. <laughs> so for me, that's what we're going to have. That is a the function, however big you want to define a function as being. It's like it's quantum, right? You know, it's like unit tech. Um, that as a deployment model makes perfect sense. It's what most developers need. What we need are better executions on those models. I am a bit, as a result of this, a bit disheartened to see what's happened with Knative, as in Google taking taking their ball away. You know, not playing with the, yeah. play with the rest of the kids anymore. Because in my experience, Google haven't always done a great job when they've developed these things in isolation. They got some great engineering, but they they don't necessarily always, I think, have a good awareness about how these things actually get used. And like if you saw early generation Kubernetes, which was based on internal Google concepts and ideas, and people are like for about five years, what the hell's a pod? Yes. <laughs> like, sure, it makes sense on Borg. I get that. You're not using Borg. So, but for me, that's going to be it. It is some kind of function primitive for most software delivery. The question really is going to be the public cloud stuff is already heads and shoulders above of what you can run on-premise. And the auxiliary serverless offerings that support that sort of cloud function delivery is already, I just think it's going to, I still think we're in a bit of a fool's errand con, con, of thinking we're actually going to be able to recreate that quality of experience on the private cloud. But a lot of people are going to try. Yes. Oh, yes. A lot of consultants going to make money, Sam, right? Absolutely. I don't do that kind of work, so I can say <laughs> stuff like this. If I did, I'd be quiet. Um, but for me, it is the function. That is, that's the way forward. And yeah, there's things to be worked out. But I think we're, we're very much Gen 1 with that stuff. Um, and I'm feeling it's a good primitive that I could understand enough of how it maps to actual executions. We've got so many more options around how to run uh, container workloads now that, you know, it's really, you know, it's some impressive stuff that's been done in that area. And, uh, and again, 
as an old Unix programmer, it was, it was weird for me to say this. An awful lot of that smart thinking has come from Microsoft in this regard. So uh, long may there continue to be a plurality of ideas around this stuff. And maybe Google will realize that going out alone with Knative was a bad idea. But who can tell? Super. Only time will tell, Sam. Only time will tell. All these insights have been fantastic. Really enjoyed chatting to you as always. Learned a bunch. Thanks so much for joining me today, Sam. Uh, you're welcome. Thanks, Daniel. <laughs>